for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church in Riverside, California. For more info about Hope City Church, visit www.hopecityriverside.org. So, Jonah goes and preaches this message. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So how do they respond? Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. We're going to read it, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these sacred scriptures by which we can know truth. We thank you for your living and breathing and powerful and active word and may you be the teacher of the church tonight. Holy Spirit, teach us as we look at your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that obey quickly and completely to whatever you speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you, uh, I forgot to mention this, I just want to say this before we dive in. If you do not have a Bible, there there should be a Bible underneath your seat. If you don't own one, if you don't have one at home, that Bible is our gift to you. You take that home and read it all day, every day, all the time, okay? just said that, yes. <laughs> Nineveh responds to a word of warning from Jonah. They respond with repentance. When Nineveh was warned, and 40 days you're going to be overthrown because you are living in sin and your wickedness has come up before God and it's leading you to destruction, they heard that word of warning and they repented. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's as beautiful as a song. And it says this. Let me read the passage again, even though we just read it. I'm going to read 5 through 9. It says, and the people, and we're going to break it down. The people of Nineveh believed God. 
They believed God, they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So his word reached the king, he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, he issued a proclamation, published it throughout Nineveh. And he says, it's my decree, and the, and the decree of the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. He says, everybody's gonna fast, everybody's fasting. Even your animals are fasting, all right? Let them all be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God, he said. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In this passage, I think we see at least five elements of genuine repentance. I think five elements of genuine, healthy, godly repentance. And so let's break them down. Number one is this. They believed God. They believed in God. I know that's simple, but that's where repentance starts. They believed in God. Look at verse five again. It says, it says, and the people of Nineveh, it's real simple, believed God. Okay? What does that mean? First of all, the word repentance, it's very, very interesting. The word repentance we think of, and we should, we think of turning. We think of turning from our sin, stopping in action. Repentance always starts with our minds. Repentance is a change of mind. It says change your thinking. Let your thinking be transformed first. See, what we want to do is we want to change our actions and, and then like that's like the deal. But the problem is we don't change our thinking. We get back into the same actions over and over again if we don't let our minds be transformed. It's huge. It's so important that we start with having our minds changed. You know, you can repent for wrong reasons. You know, we can have selfish and ungodly motives for repenting. We can repent so we look good in front of others. We can repent because we think that that earns our status with God, that somehow now he loves me because I'm doing the right things. We can repent for all the wrong reasons. He says, start by having your mind transformed. Change your mind. We, have you ever repented, but you didn't want, like you stopped doing something, but your, you know, your heart and your mind were not in it at all? I'm, listen, I'm a fan of obedience, okay? I'm a, I'm a, I, I don't do it like you not as often as I should, okay? Like I don't, but, I'm, but I believe in obedience. I believe in obedience, even, even doing the right thing, even when our will is not completely there. I believe in doing the right thing. I think the key is getting our will in line. I think the key is getting our mind in line. So what the, fir the first thing they did was they believed in God. They changed their mindset. Their mindset was probably, let me just guess, because they're living in rampant sin that came up before God. He says, this is a stench to me. So I'm guessing their, their mindset was, I don't even know if there is a God. And if there is, he's certainly not punishing anybody. And it seems like, let's just roll ahead. And, you know, I want that. I'm going to do it. And, and this looks good. And I'm going to take that. And this promises to be awesome, even though I know people say it's a sin. But I'm going to run. What's the mindset that they have, right? But the first thing it is, they go, oh, they believe God. When they heard, no, Jonah says, this is going to lead to destruction. In fact, in 40 days, everything here is going to be leveled, scorched earth, buddies. They went, oh, you know what? I believe that. They changed their thinking. They believed, first of all, that God exists, that there is a God. They believed that he was warning them against destruction. They believed that, that this God is holy, that that is he hates sin and the destruction it causes in our lives. 
They believed that there would be a price to pay, that there would be destruction. They agreed that they were sinners. Okay, we're sinning. Our sinners come up before God. And they believed, if you look at verse 9, they believed that God might show them mercy. How hopeless would our repentance be if we didn't believe that last part? How pointless would our repentance be if we didn't believe that repentance would lead to mercy? Do we believe these things? Do we believe that there is a God and that He is perfectly holy and that He loves us but deeply and vehemently hates sin? and the destruction that it causes in our lives? Do we believe that he will speak a word of warning to us and that if we will heed that word of warning, we might receive the mercy of God? Do we, it says they believed God. They believe this. It starts with letting our, repentance is always, always starts with letting our minds be transformed. Number two, so number one was this. It's, Five elements of genuine repentance. Number one is they believe God. Number two, they humbled themselves. They humbled themselves and mourned over their sin. Those two go hand in hand. They humbled themselves and they mourned over their sin. Look at uh, verses five and six too. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And they, what they do? They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. You're like, hang on a second, that's a couple of verses now. We keep talking about sackcloth and ashes, and bro, I, I'm trying to follow you, but like, we don't do this. Like, I've never met anybody who went out and like, put on like, sackcloth, and then covered himself in ashes, and, was, and I was like, okay, so I don't understand this. Help me understand this cultural practice, okay? I'm glad you asked, let me help you explain it, okay? What is sackcloth? Sackcloth is basically just a coarse black cloth made from goat's hair, or like, think of like burlap. Think of like a big potato sack. Okay, real itchy and nasty and just like, you don't wanna wear, it's unpleasant. Okay, it's intentionally unpleasant. So they would wear sackcloth and they would sit in and cover themselves in the burnt ashes of wood. Imagine like burning some wood, letting the ashes cool down, and then just covering yourself in it while you're wearing this burlap, this sackcloth. Yeah, it's like, I don't think it helps the itching. I think it probably intensifies the itching, okay? This is intended to be very, very unpleasant, okay? They would do this typically to symbolize two things, mourning and humility. When, when a loved one would die, they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. They were mourning. They were showing how deeply distressed they were. And it was saying, this is, this is where I'm at, this is my life, this is where I, this is, I'm nothing great, I'm, I'm sitting in ashes. This is, it's humility. It's mourning and humility. So let's tackle those. What does it mean when they're mourning over a word of warning about their sin? It means that they're mourning over their sin. See, now they believe God. They believe that they're sinners. They believe that their sin is offensive to a holy God. They believe that their sin is destructive and they're actually mourning over their sin. They're mourning over the destruction that sin brings. They're mourning over the death that will come for living in sin. And this is biblical. We push so hard away from this in this kind of 
maybe our modern grace message is like, never allow anything that feels bad. Never allow yourself to feel bad ever. And I understand because there is a danger, there is a, a tipping point where, where, where sorrow becomes unhealthy and ungodly. And too many people live in that. Okay, but I want to show you the scriptures. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. It says this, and it addresses both kinds of sorrow. It addresses both kinds of grief. Healthy, helpful, godly grief, and unhelpful, unhealthy, ungodly grief. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. It says, for godly grief, let's just, can I just pause right there and acknowledge the fact that the scripture clearly says there is such a thing as a godly grief. There is a godly way to grief. There are godly reasons to grieve. So this is godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It says you shouldn't regret that. If you feel that feeling, don't regret it. That's good. If you have a godly grief, it's good. It shouldn't be regretted because it's going to lead to salvation. Whereas worldly grief produces death. He says that they had a, a godly grief, the people he's talking to. He says, now, now pay attention. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Here's how you can tell godly grief, because it made you just earnest to follow God. It made you, like, determined to follow the things of God. It says, see what, it says, what also eagerness to clear yourselves, to rid yourself of the sin, to deal with the sin in your life. Listen, Christ has dealt with sin once and for all, but we have a part to play in sanctification. Okay? He says, you are holy, therefore be holy. We have a part to play. He says, I've set you apart, now set yourself apart. That's what scripture says all the time. He says, I've dealt with sin, now deal with your sin. By my power. That's what he says, all over the scriptures. Not deal with it, and then you'll have my favor. He says, I've dealt with it for you. And we go, oh, thank you. He goes, now deal with it. By my power. Fake grace says, Christ dealt with my sin, I can live however I want. That's fake grace. True grace leads to repentance. True grace allows a godly sorrow, a godly grief in our heart over our sin that leads to repentance, leads to a clearing of ourselves. He says, what indignation, what, have you ever been just like, no, like you, I sinned again and you're just like, you're just indignant. You're like, no, that is not, no, I'm not going to sin again in that area. Right. And, and, and maybe you do four million times again, but at some point you get victory. Okay? And then God shows you like a new thing to deal with in your heart, right? Like the process is never complete. So long as we're breathing here, we are works in progress, okay? There's always going to be new sin to deal with, new stuff in my heart. It says, but a godly sorrow will lead to repentance in those areas. What fear? What fear of God? A godly grief will lead to a fear of God that is healthy. It says that's the beginning of wisdom. You want to, you haven't even begun to be wise, Scripture says, until you have a fear of God. It says the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. It says what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in this matter. He says here's what happened. Godly grief produced repentance and you cleared yourself and you were indignant about your sin and you were seeking God and, you're, and you're, you're just longing for him and you have this fear of God. He says, you see what godly grief produces? It's good to have a godly grief. A godly sorrow 
over our sin. That would be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We all have felt it. When we know and see and have experienced, when we've sinned and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it leads us to a place of repentance. That's healthy. That's beautiful. That's good. That's life-giving. That's growth. The sorrow of the world or worldly grief is condemnation, shame, guilt which you feel you can do nothing to alleviate. That is the sorrow of the world. That is a worldly grief. He says, you know what that will produce in your life? Death. That will produce more sin leading unto death. So here's what you do. If you live in this pattern, and many Christians live in this pattern, I sin and I feel absolute condemnation. Not the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but condemnation. I'm a horrible person. I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I, I, these are the things that are happening in your head. Thoroughly agree. I'm, I, I'm never going to be right. I'm broken. I'm, I'm damaged goods. Uh, I can't be loved. I'm worthless. I'm worse than other people. I'm more broken than everybody else. There's a worldly grief. What's going to happen when you live in that and you accept that and you stay in that place, that worldly grief? What's going to happen? You, just, it, you can feel it right now. It's oppressive, isn't it? That is oppressive. That's like being buried alive. That's like, oh, you just can't. There's no way to get out of that. There's nothing godly about that. This is, it's, it's just, that's a grief of the world when you are living buried alive by condemnation. There's none of Jesus in that. He says that will lead, what do you do when you live in that place? You go, forget it. I'm already jacked up. I'm already broken. I'm already hopeless. To more sin, to more destruction, to more death. And then, guess what? Every time, more condemnation, more shame, more guilt you can't do anything about. How do you cover yourself? I'm already broken. More sin, more destruction. He says, worldly grief produces death in you. But there is a godly grief a godly grief that I look to the cross of Christ and I go, that was my sin. That was my sin that put him there. And it was his love that put him there. And I'm free. And I'm free. Now God, empower me to live free. That is godly grief. That is godly sorrow. And the Holy Spirit of God will empower you to walk that out. Good question I ask myself when I feel that sting. It's a simple question, we've all heard it, but I go, am I sorry over my sin? Or am I just sorry that there are consequences? Am I, do I actually have a sorrow that I have hurt my God and walked away from him and been unfaithful to the Lord and, and hurt him, hurt his heart? Am I grieved over that? Or am I just grieved that there are consequences? So it says, it represents mourning. So that sackcloth and ashes represents mourning and it represents humility. It's a humbling of ourselves. Listen, we're repeatedly told to humble ourselves before God. 
you know, Johnny Cash, I, I don't know if there's any country fans in here. I'm not a big country fan, but I love me some Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash, say what you want about him. He lived a life, he had whatever, but, he, but man, I'm telling you, that guy believed in Jesus from what I can tell. He loved the Lord. He certainly didn't live perfectly all his days like any one of us do. But he said this at one point. He says, my arms are too short to box with God. My arms are too short to box with God. I'm not taking him on. So when I see God and his holiness and his righteousness and I see my sin for what it is, I don't get arrogant and go, you can't tell me what's sin and what's not. My arms are too short to box with God. The proper response is I humble myself and I go, oh, you, oh you're God. That one. Who breathed. And universes. And I'm Jason. <laughs> Seeing Christ for who he is and ourselves for who we are will immediately lead to humility. Immediately. In fact, I think humility is taking our eyes off of ourselves and seeing God for who he is. Read Revelation 4. You want to get an awe-inspiring picture of God on the throne and lightnings and peals of thunder and elders and crazy-looking creatures falling down on their face and worshiping him. And they don't stop night or day saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we see God for who he is, we humble ourselves. And if we don't, we didn't see him right. If we don't, we're still worshiping a God we think is just like some other dude. Or just like some other God. Fake God. Small G. When we see the living God for who he really is, there's only one response. On our face. Humble before the Lord. James chapter 4, verse 6 and verse 10. It says, but he, God, gives more grace. Isn't that good news? This is Paul, like, he gives more grace to who? He says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want to be proud? God is in opposition to you. You want to walk in pride? Listen, here's the, here's the reality. I'm not, I am not a, a, this is true of all of us. I'm just going to say it of me, so I'm not picking on you, okay? We are not humble, naturally. We are self-centered and self-focused. We are not humble, naturally. Our only hope for humility is to say, God, make me humble. Make me humble. And as soon as I think I'm humble, uh-oh. We walk in pride. Listen to the way we talk about God and his word and the things of God. And listen to the way we exalt ourselves all the time. I catch myself all the time, like, I, literally, I, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's, it's a great example, and not to get a pity party, but, like, literally, like, within the last two weeks, I have, I've had people, like, directly assault my character, like, without grounds, like, just directly say things about me that were complete lies, just slander, and I get, and I'm starting to, like, fire back some response to defend my name, and God's like, time out, kid. Did you think you were here to make your name great? Did you think I put you on this earth to defend your name? Uh, humility comes when God speaks like that. I go, oh yeah, okay. It's all about you. I don't need to make my name great. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to say a word. 
God, you see and you know everything, and you're more concerned about the junk in my own heart than you are about whatever somebody else said or did to me. It's humility. It's seeing God for who he is. I spent too much time on two. Just, just, let's, let's finish that point two with this question. Do I have a godly grief over my sin? If you have a worldly grief, destroy it. By the power of God, pray, and you just, you just, you just crucify that. Every time you're buried by condemnation, every time you're buried by guilt that you can't do anything about and shame, that is the sorrow of the world, that is a grief of the world, and you kill it, and you dive into God's word and say, what is true about me? And allow that to produce a godly sorrow, okay? Number three. So, elements of of healthy, genuine repentance. Number one, they believed in God. Number two, they humbled themselves and mourned over their sin. Number three, they fasted and prayed. Okay? They fasted and prayed. I, I won't read the verses again, but you heard it. Okay? He says, like, nobody's eating. You're not eating. Your animals aren't eating. Like, nobody's eating. We're going to cry out to God. Everybody's fasting. Okay? And by the way, it's not just going without food. Now, fasting is, okay, we're abstaining from food for a purpose. I've heard it said this way. This is a great definition of fasting. It's fasting from food or abstaining from food to feast on the things of God. Okay? It's not just going without food. Fasting isn't a diet. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that you can't repent without fasting. I'm saying fasting will definitely aid your repentance. It's definitely a great tool to help you humble yourself. You become very aware of your need and dependence on God. You know, every time you're hungry, it should be a reminder that I am dependent on God to feed me every day. I'm hungry. Oh, I would die if God didn't provide for me. That's, there's humility. That'll, that'll lead to some healthy fear of God and some humbling. But since they fasted and they prayed, they went without food as an outward symbolic display of their inward spiritual hunger for righteousness. Righteousness, they said, I'm so hungry to be in right standing with you, God. My greatest need is not food, my greatest need is you, and it's to be in right standing with you, and I see that that's broken right now, so I will put away everything else to get in line with you, to, 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 to break my flesh down and, and make my spirit come alive in you and find right standing in you. Matthew chapter five, verse six, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When our greatest hunger is to be in right standing with God, it says we will be filled. We will be satisfied. So they prayed, they didn't just fast, they cried out to God, you see that? Says any, verse 7, it says, By the decree of the kings and nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. In verse 8, but let them be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. It wasn't just going without food. It was, it was feeding on the things. It was calling out and crying out mightily to God. It's fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer. You see this. I don't have time to teach this. I wish I did. I wish I did. I could do 45 minutes right now on just the link that you see in Scripture between prayer and fasting and the power of prayer and fasting together. It's, it's worth the study. Make yourself a little note if that's something you're interested in. It's worth the study. 
the power of combined prayer and fasting. So they prayed. They cried out to God for salvation and mercy. We need to do the same. When we find ourselves in that place where we, God is calling us to repentance, we, we need to cry out to God. We need to pray. What we do is we run from him. He goes, he convicts us of sin, and we go, oh, now I can't be around you, God, and now I can't be around the people of God, and now I can't do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seclude myself in the same. And listen, I get it, because sometimes the people of God are not very much like God. Especially in our brokenness. We take off our mask, and they go, oh, and you go, oh, okay, it's not safe here. It should be the safest place. The church should be the safest place to take off your mask. We need to pray. When, when God calls us to repentance, we need to pray, confess our sin to him, cry out to him, call out mightily to him. Ask him to give us a genuine hunger and thirst to be in right standing with him. We don't want that on our own. Even the desire for God is given by God. So if you find yourself and go, I, I know I should, but I don't desire God, it's okay. Acknowledging that is step one. That's awesome. Now here's your prayer. God, help me want to. God, help me. Give me a desire. I can't have it on my own. I don't have it on my own. It's, it's an amazing place of faith to find yourself there, to say, I don't have it. Actually, I don't desire God the way that I should. Then that's your prayer. God, help me desire you. Help me to burn for you. Number four. So it says they believe God, number one. These elements of genuine repentance. They believe God. They humbled themselves. They mourned over their sin. The third thing was that they fasted and prayed forth. They turned from their sin. Bam, bam, bam. That was the one we didn't want. We like all this, like, I'll pray, I'll cry. Man. They turned from their sin. Look at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The Ninevites didn't just believe in God and humble themselves and mourn over their sin and fast and pray and leave it at that. They turned from their sin. They turned from their sin and from their violence. They stopped doing the wickedness that they were doing. They obeyed the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean they were perfect, I'm sure. And it doesn't mean it happened like that, I'm sure. But, they, but repentance always includes turning from sin. If your, if your repentance stops short of actually turning from sin, it wasn't repentance. It was feeling bad. This is true repentance. True repentance is never just feeling bad and making promises to God that we don't intend to keep. True repentance is turning from sin. And obviously, we need the grace and power of God to do that. I taught my kids. They, if I brought them in here right now, they could do this for you. I taught my kids how to repent. I, ta well, I taught them what repentance was. I wanted to give them a picture of it. And silly, it worked because they were kids. It was awesome, but to this day, they can still do it. And it, it was always two things. It was repent and trust in God. That's what the scripture, even when they're proclaiming the gospel in the New Testament, it's this. Repent and trust in Jesus. 
Repent. It's not just repent, it's repent and trust in Jesus. So I taught my kids this. I, I just pretended like, okay, I said, okay, that wall is sin and you're headed towards it. So I want you guys to just walk towards sin. And they're like, okay, uh, we're going. And I, go, and I taught them that this. When I say, if, if they were to do it right now, they would just do this. I'm standing here, they're walking towards us, and I say, repent. They turn around and they start booking it in the opposite direction, okay? They understand that repentance is turning from sin. It's not just, oh, I feel really bad. I'm mourning over my sin. I'm sorry. Oh, it's awesome. Oh, sin, you're amazing. Like, thank you. I'm so <laughs> If we do that, it's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is God, empower me to turn from that sin and trust in you. And so the second part is they would turn around, they would run, and then they would run and jump up in my arms. And that was, I'm not Jesus, but that was supposed to be a picture of Repent and trust him. You can trust in him. We don't have to run from him when he's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to repentance is calling us to him. We got to get that. We think when he calls us to repentance, he's saying, you're horrible. I don't want you. That's not what God is saying when he calls us to repentance. It is the blessed conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, that's sin and it will destroy you. Come to me. Because I love you and I'll never destroy you. And you'll find freedom in me. And you'll find true life, abundant life in me. Come to me. Repentance is always God saying, turn from that. I'm better. Come here. Jump up in daddy's arms. Come here. That's horrible. It looks awesome. I know it looks awesome. It's promising you amazing things. I'm telling you right now, it's going to turn its head on you. It's going to destroy you. Please turn from that. Come to me. I'm better. That's repentance. That's what it is to repent and put our trust in Jesus. And we need the power of God to want to do that, and we need the power of God to actually do that. And that is a lifelong, daily, sometimes a hundred or a thousand times a day process. Isn't it? Yes. Number five. So number four was they turned from their sin, elements of genuine repentance. Number five is this, they trusted in God's mercy. They trusted in God's mercy. So they didn't just humble themselves and mourn and have this grief and and turn from their sin. They trusted that God was a merciful God. All of the other stuff, I said it already, but it's pointless if I don't believe this last part. If I don't believe that I can jump in his arms and receive mercy and grace, what am I, why would I even turn from that? If all it was was, that's horrible, don't do it, and no, you don't have a place here, or you're, you're condemned forever, if that's what it was, why would I? I'd go, well, I'm condemned forever. I might as well have some fun while the ship's going down. They were banking on the fact that God would be merciful and gracious toward them. They were banking on it. They were banking their lives on it. Notice that this belief didn't drive them deeper into sin. They didn't say, God is gracious, let's sin. They didn't say, wow, I believe God has mercy for me. I can keep on doing. It didn't lead to that. Genuine grace always leads to repentance. Titus says, grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. And if it's not teaching us to deny ungodliness, it's fake grace. Repentance is always believing. It's turning and trusting. Turning from sin, trusting in Christ. They trusted that although they had sinned and deserved the punishment that was coming, 
that God would hold it back if they trusted in him. That's what they believed. Are we trusting in God's great mercy? Do we believe this? That we can come boldly before his throne knowing that we're going to receive mercy and grace. Scripture says, in our time of need. I don't need grace when I'm doing awesome, which is like mostly never. I don't need grace. That's not my time of need. I need grace when I've blown it. And it says, we can trust that we're going to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Do you believe that God longs to be gracious toward you? Or are you waiting constantly for his hammer of judgment? Just sure that this love and grace thing is kind of an act and he's just waiting to pummel you. Our view of God makes a huge difference. Let me, let me wrap this up because I know I'm already over time. But I, but I want to get this because I feel like if we land here and don't get to this part, and I'll do it quickly, I feel like I'll leave you with an incomplete picture for this week. So is it okay? Permission for a couple more minutes? Cool? Okay. Thank you both. I'm going to take two people's opinion. I'm gonna... The rest of you are all along for the ride because two people said yes to me, okay? So it was Nineveh's repentance, and now what I want to look at is God's mercy, and I'm going to do it real quick, okay? But this is so huge because they were banking on God's mercy, but did God actually show it to them? Did God actually display his great mercy? Well, verse 10 tells us, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil away. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Do you see the radical mercy of God? Yeah. Two things about this. God sees. That is, God sees our repentance. God sees our hearts of repentance and our deeds of repentance. It says, when God saw what they did, so God sees your repentance. God sees even those little internal moral like victories, okay, that no one else can see. When you didn't respond, when you bit through your tongue to not say the horrible thing and then you prayed to get your heart right and did, God saw that. God saw that. He says he sees. Second thing about this we see is that God relents. It says he relented concerning the disaster that he had proclaimed over them. He says, you're headed for destruction. 40 days are going to be overthrown. They repented. He goes, ah, he relented. Jonah knew this was coming. We're going to see this. Maybe next week. <laughs> Jonah knew this was coming. And it's why he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. God showed his mercy and grace. And he always shows his mercy and grace to those who humble themselves in repentance and seek him. Let me give you three verses, and we're going to close. And I'll do them fast. Isaiah 30, verse 18, if you're taking notes. I'm going to rattle these off quick. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits. Other translations say the Lord longs to be gracious to you. You see, the longing of God's heart is not to judge you, not to condemn you. The longing of God's heart is to pour out His grace in abundance on you. It says, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. 
says, yes, God is a God of justice, and he's longing that his justice would be to pour out grace and mercy on the repentant. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It's talking about, like, like, why hasn't Christ returned yet? He's so slow in fulfilling his promise. And he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It says Jesus hasn't returned yet because he's still longing to pour out his grace on others who are going to repent. There are some who will repent still. God knows that God sees it, and he's not bringing disaster one second too soon. His judgment is not coming one second too soon. Will not happen until the last open humble, sensitive, soft, repentant heart repents and trusts him. And he goes, I was longing to pour out my mercy and grace to you. First John chapter 1, verse 9. Written to Christians. Written to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These scriptures tell us that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but that he longs to pour out his grace on us and that he gives grace to the humble, is faithful to forgive those who confess their sins to him. Listen to me. This is the main point of everything that we have looked at in the scripture tonight. If I could sum up tonight's teaching in one sentence, it would be this. A genuinely repentant person will always find an abundantly merciful God. A genuinely repentant person will always find an abundantly merciful God. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truth that you speak to us in love. I thank you, God, for calling us to repentance by your Holy Spirit in your love, convicting us of sin. And we know that a call to repent is a call to jump into your arms, to turn from the things that you see and you know will devastate us and turn to the only one who will never fail us. And so, Father, grant us repentance. Grant us hearts, God, we pray, that would desire to repent. Grant us the power to repent. Grant us, God, your abundant mercy and grace as we jump into your loving arms, trusting in your mercy, knowing that if we and when we are genuinely repentant, you are always faithfully merciful and good. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.